Book Seven, Chapter Two of The Fallen Leaves. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Fallen Leaves by Wilkie Collins. Book Seven, Chapter Two. Amelius went straight back to the cottage, with the one desperate purpose of reverting to the old plan, and burying himself in his books. Surveying his well-filled shelves with an impatience unworthy of a scholar, Hume's History of England unhappily caught his eye. He took down the first volume. In less than half an hour he discovered that Hume could do nothing for him. Wisely inspired, he turned to the truer history next, which men call fiction. The writings of the one supreme genius, who soars above all other novelists, as Shakespeare soars above all other dramatists, the writings of Walter Scott, had their place of honor in his library. The collection of the Waverley novels at Tadmore had not been complete. Enviable Amelius had still to read Rob Roy. He opened the book. For the rest of the day he was in love with Diana Vernon, and when he looked out once or twice to the garden to rest his eyes, he saw Andrew Fairservice busy over the flower-beds. He closed the last page of the noble story as Toff came in to lay the cloth for dinner. The master at table and the servant behind his chair were accustomed to gossip pleasantly during meals. Amelius did his best to carry on the talk as usual but he was no longer in the delightful world of illusion which Scott had opened to him. The hard realities of his own everyday life had gathered round him again. Observing him with unobtrusive attention, the Frenchman soon perceived the absence of the easy humor and the excellent appetite which distinguished his young master at other times. "'May I venture to make a remark, sir?' Toff inquired after a long pause in the conversation. Certainly. And may I take the liberty of expressing my sentiments freely? Of course you may. Dear sir, you have a pretty little simple dinner to-day, Toff began. Forgive me for praising myself. I am influenced by the natural pride of having cooked the dinner. For soup you have crouton pas. For meat you have turned au à la sauce poivrade. For pudding, you have pommes au beurre, also nice, and you hardly eat anything, and your amiable conversation falls into a melancholy silence which fills me with regret. Is it you who are to blame for this? No, sir, it is the life you lead. I call it the life of a monk, I call it the life of a hermit, I say boldly it is the life of all others which is most unsympathetic to a young man like you. Pardon the warmth of my expressions, I am eager to make my language the language of utmost delicacy. May I quote a little song? It is in an old, old, old French piece, long since forgotten, called Les Marie Garçons. There are two lines in that song. I have often heard my good father sing them, which I will venture to apply to your case. Amour, delicatesse et gaieté, bon français, c'est la devise. Sir, so you have naturally delicatesse and gait, but 
the last has for some days been under a cloud what is wanted to remove that cloud l'amour love as you say in english where is the charming woman who is the only ornament wanting to this sweet cottage why is she invisible remedy that unhappy oversight sir you are here in a suburban paradise i consult my long experience and i implore you to invite eve ha you smile your lost gaiety returns and you feel it as i do might i propose another glass of claret and the reappearance on the table of the turn d'eau a la poivrade it was impossible to be melancholy in this man's company amelia sanctioned the return of the turn d'eau and tried the other glass of claret my good friend he said with something like a return of his old easy way you talk about charming women and your long experience let's hear what your experience has been for the first time toff began to look a little confused you have honored me sir by calling me your good friend he said after that i am sure you will not send me away if i own the truth no my heart tells me i shall not appeal to your indulgence in vain dear sir in the holidays which you kindly give me i provide competent persons to take care of the house in my absence don't i one person if you remember was a most handsome engaging young man he is if you please my son by my first wife now an angel in heaven another person who took care of the house on the next occasion was a little black-eyed boy a miracle of discretion for his age he is my son by my second wife now another angel in heaven forgive me i have not done yet some days since you thought you heard an infant crying downstairs like a miserable wretch i lied i declared it was the infant in the next house ah uh, sir it was my own cherubim baby by my third wife an angel close by in the edgware road established in a small milliner's shop which will expand to great things by and by the intervals between my marriages are not worthy of your notice fugitive caprices sir fugitive caprices to sum it all up as you say in england it is not in me to resist the enchanting sex if my third angel dies i shall tear my hair but i shall none the less take a fourth take a dozen if you like said amelius why should you have kept all this from my knowledge toff hung his head i think it was one of my foreign mistakes he pleaded the servants advertisements in your english newspapers frighten me how does the most meritorious manservant announce himself when he wants the best possible place he says he is without encumbrances gracious heaven what a dreadful word to describe the poor pretty harmless children i was afraid sir you might have some english objection to my encumbrances a young man a boy and a cherubim baby not to speak of the sacred memories of two women and the charming occasional society of a third all inextricably enveloped in the life of one amorous meritorious french person surely there was reason for hesitation here no matter i bless my stars i know better now and i withdraw myself from further notice permit me to recall your attention to the rockford cheese and a mouthful of potato salad to correct the richness of him the dinner was over at last amelius was alone again 
It was a still evening. Not a breath of wind stirred among the trees in the garden. No vehicles passed along the by-road in which the cottage stood. Now and then Toff was audible downstairs, singing French songs in a high cracked voice while he washed the plates and dishes and set everything in order for the night. Amelius looked at his bookshelves and felt that, after Rob Roy, there was no more reading for him that evening. The slow minutes followed one another wearily. The deadly depression of the earlier hours of the day was stealthily fastening its hold on him again. How might he best resist it? His healthy out-of-door habits at Tadmore suggested the only remedy that he could think of. Be his troubles what they might, his one simple method of resisting them at all other times was his simple method now. He went out for a walk. For two hours he rambled about the great northwestern suburb of London. Perhaps he felt the heavy oppressive weather, or perhaps his good dinner had not agreed with him. Anyway, he was so thoroughly worn out that he was obliged to return to the cottage in a cab. Toff opened the door, but not with his customary alacrity. Amelius was too completely fatigued to notice any trifling circumstance. Otherwise he would certainly have perceived something odd in the old Frenchman's withered face. He looked at his master as he relieved him of his hat and coat with the strangest expression of interest and anxiety, modified by a certain sardonic sense of amusement underlying the more serious emotions. "'A nasty dull evening,' Amelius said wearily. And Toff, always eager to talk at other times, only answered, "'Yes, sir,' and retreated at once to the kitchen regions." The fire was bright, the curtains were drawn, the reading lamp with its ample green shade was on the table, a more comfortable room no man could have found to receive him after a long walk. Reclining at his ease in his chair, Amelius thought of ringing for some restorative brandy and water. While he was thinking he fell asleep, and while he slept he dreamed. Was it a dream? He certainly saw the library, not fantastically transformed, but just like what the room really was. So far he might have been wide awake, looking at the familiar objects round him. But after a while an event happened which set the laws of reality at defiance. Simple Sally, miles away in the home, made her appearance in the library nevertheless. He saw the drawn curtains over the window parted from behind. He saw the girl step out from them and stop, looking at him timidly. She was clothed in the plain dress that he had bought for her, and she looked more charming in it than ever. The beauty of health claimed kindred now in her pretty face, with the beauty of youth, the wan cheeks had begun to fill out, and the pale lips were delicately suffused with their natural rosy red. Little by little her first fears seemed to subside. She smiled and softly crossed the room and stood at his side. After looking at him with a rapt expression of tenderness and delight, she laid her hands on the arm of the chair and said in the quaintly quiet way which he remembered so well, I want to kiss you. She bent over him and kissed him with the innocent freedom of a child. Then she raised herself again and looked backwards and forwards between Amelius and the lamp. The firelight is the best, she said. 
Darkness fell over the room as she spoke. He saw her no more. He heard her no more. A blank interval followed. There flowed over him the oblivion of perfect sleep. His next conscious sensation was a feeling of cold. He shivered and woke. The impression of the dream was in his mind at the moment of waking. He started as he raised himself in the chair. Was he dreaming still? No, he was certainly awake, and as certainly the room was dark. He looked and looked. It was not to be denied or explained away. There was the fire burning low and leaving the room chilly, and there, just visible on the table, in the flicker of the dying flame, was the extinguished lamp. He mended the fire and put his hand on the bell to ring for Toff and thought better of it. What need had he of the lamplight? He was too weary for reading. He preferred going to sleep again and dreaming again of Sally. Where was the harm in dreaming of the poor little soul so far away from him? The happiest part of his life now was the part of it that was passed in sleep. As the fresh coals began to kindle feebly, he looked again at the lamp. It was odd, to say the least of it, that the light should have accidentally gone out exactly at the right time to realize the fanciful extinction of it in his dream. How was it there was no smell of a burnt-out lamp? He was too lazy or too tired to pursue the question. Let the mystery remain a mystery, and let him rest in peace." He settled himself fretfully in his chair. What a fool he was to bother his head about a lamp, instead of closing his eyes and going to sleep again. The room began to recover its pleasant temperature. He shifted the cushion in the chair so that it supported his head in perfect comfort, and composed himself to rest. But the capricious influences of sleep had deserted him. He tried one position after another, and all in vain. It was a mere mockery, even, to shut his eyes. He resigned himself to circumstances, and stretched out his legs, and looked at the companionable fire. Of late he had thought more frequently than usual of his past days in the community. His mind went back again now to that bygone time. The clock on the mantelpiece struck nine. They were all at supper at Tadmore, talking over the events of the day. He saw himself again at the long wooden table, with shy little Melisant in the chair next to him, and his favorite dog at his feet, waiting to be fed. Where was Melisant now? It was a sad letter that she had written to him, with the strange fixed idea that he was to return to her one day. There was something very winning and lovable about the poor creature who had lived such a hard life at home, and had suffered so keenly. It was a comfort to think that she would go back to the community. What happier destiny could she hope for? Would she take care of his dog for him when she went back? They had all promised to be kind to his pet animals in his absence, but the dog was fond of Melisant. He would be happier with Melisant than with the rest of them. And his little tame fawn, and his birds, how were they doing? He had not even written to inquire after them. He had been cruelly forgetful of those harmless, dumb, loving friends. In his present solitude, in his dreary doubts of the future, what would he not give to feel the dog nestling in his bosom, and the fawn's little rough tongue licking his hand? His heart ached as he thought of it. A choking hysterical sensation oppressed his breathing. He tried to rise and ring for lights, and rouse his manhood to endure and resist. 
it was not to be done where was his courage where was the cheerfulness which had never failed him at other time he sank back in his chair and hid his face in his hands for shame at his own weakness and burst out crying the touch of soft persuasive fingers suddenly thrilled through him his hands were gently drawn away from his face a familiar voice sweet and low said oh don't cry dimly through his tears he saw the well-remembered little figure standing between him and the fire in his unendurable loneliness he had longed for his dog he had longed for his fawn there was the martyred creature from the streets whom he had rescued from nameless horror waiting to be his companion servant friend there was the child victim of cold and hunger still only feeling her way to womanhood innocent of all other aspirations so long as she might fill the place which had once been occupied by the dog and the fawn amelius looked at her with a momentary doubt whether he was waking or sleeping good god he cried am i dreaming again no she said simply you are awake this time let me dry your eyes i know where you put your handkerchief she perched on his knee and wiped away the tears and smoothed his hair over his forehead i was frightened to show myself till i heard you crying she confessed then i thought come he can't be angry with me now and i crept out from behind the curtains there the old man let me in i can't live without seeing you i've tried till i could try no longer i owned it to the old man when he opened the door i said i only want to look at him won't you let me in and he says god bless me here's eve come already i don't know what he meant he let me in that's all i care about he's a funny old foreigner send him away i'm to be your servant now why were you crying i've cried often enough about you no that can't be i can't expect you to cry about me i can only expect you to scold me i know i'm a bad girl she cast one doubtful look at him and hung her head waiting to be scolded amelius lost all control over himself he took her in his arms and kissed her again and again you are a dear good grateful little creature he burst out and suddenly stopped aware too late of the act of imprudence which he had committed he put her away from him he tried to ask severe questions and to administer merited reproof even if he had succeeded sally was too happy to listen to him it's all right now she cried i'm never 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 to go back to the home oh i'm so happy let's light the lamp again she found the match-box on the chimney-piece in a minute more the room was bright amelia sat looking at her perfectly incapable of deciding what he ought to say or do next to complete his bewilderment the voice of the attentive old frenchman made itself heard through the door in discreetly confidential tones i have prepared an appetizing little supper sir said toff be pleased to ring when you and the young lady are ready End of book seven, chapter two.